So, we are in the book of Romans. We're actually in chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, grab it. If you don't have one, there's probably one in the seat front in front of you. Grab it. Turn with us to chapter 15. We have been going through Romans now over the course of the past five months. And that might seem like a long time, but I, I recently heard that John MacArthur's church spent two years going through it. So I guess not so long after all, right? Um, but as you spend so much time studying a single letter that was intended, by the way, to have been read in a single sitting, but as you spend that much time kind of going over it in a fine tooth comb, you pick out a lot of things, but you can begin to lose sight of the bigger picture. And so I just want to remind us of the context. I want to remind us of the, of the person who wrote the book of Romans. His name was Paul. And he began his career, at least the first time we hear about him in the book of Acts, he's actually a Pharisee presiding over the stoning or the, the martyrdom of the first Christian martyr, a guy named Stephen. He is the one giving his approval to them killing a person for declaring his faith in Jesus Christ. And then he gets some letters from the Sanhedrin, the ruling uh, Jewish group of people, to go to other cities and to begin to persecute more Christians who believe in Jesus Christ. And so he's on his way to a city named Damascus, intent on at least, at the very least, uh, locking up and silencing these Christians when Jesus Christ confronts him. Jesus had risen from the dead, and in a, in a blinding flash of light, Paul's entire world stops for a moment. He's knocked from the, the donkey that he's riding. He's on the ground. He's blinded by that light. And Jesus says, Saul, he changes his name later to Paul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he sends him on to Damascus where he's met by a man named Ananias, somebody who Jesus had sent. And this Ananias begins to minister to Paul. He gets his eyesight back. And over the course of several years, he transitions from being the greatest opponent of Christianity, at least one that we were aware of, to becoming the greatest proponent. And specifically, and Paul will say this in, in Romans chapter 15, the passage that we're going to look at, he was specifically called by God to be a minister of the gospel, the good news, the fact that we who are fallen, who are broken, who could not possibly earn our, our righteous standing with God by our own strength, what we cannot do for ourselves, God has done for us by sending Jesus Christ to die in our place. That is the foundation that we have to stand on. It is by faith we are saved. By grace, not by works, so that nobody can boast. That's the gospel message. And, and God specifically said, Paul, I want you to share that good news, not with your Jewish brethren, but with the Gentiles, all the non-Jews. And Paul articulates this here towards the end of Romans chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 14. Paul says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Again, he's writing to a church that's made up mainly of Gentile Christians, also some Jewish Christians, all trying to kind of figure out life together. He says, Yet I've written to you quite boldly on some points to, to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, these non-Jewish people. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified or set apart by the Holy Spirit. Paul recognizes that the only standing we have is when God plants his Holy Spirit in our hearts. When we, when we give ourselves to him, he gives us his Holy Spirit to begin that sanctifying work of kind of stripping away the old self. Verse 17, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus 
in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. By the power of signs and wonders, these are not things that he did by himself, but by the power of God working in him through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way over to Elycrium, or, yeah, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ is not known. Paul was one of these. He, he's, he, is, uh, he loves to kind of advance the gospel into these uncharted territories, places where people hadn't heard it, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it's written, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So this, by the way, Roman Christians, is why I have often been hindered in coming to you. Because I've been traveling all around the Mediterranean regions, particularly in these Asian countries. Do we have the, the map? Can we throw that up for just a moment? Okay, so over here in Asia Minor, I totally forgot my laser pointer, which is Macedonian Asian Minor, so the right side. He's been traveling around there, sharing the gospel with Gentiles, starting churches and so forth. And that's why I haven't been able to get to Rome, which is kind of right there in the middle, that boot-shaped thing right in the middle. That's why I haven't been able to get to you. And so Paul had spent a couple of decades traveling around, sharing the good news, planting churches. And now the time is coming for him to continue the next stage of what he hopes will be his ministry. Now, as he's been traveling around to these churches, one of the things he would do is he would ask the Gentiles in those churches to put together a collection for the um, widows and orphans back in Jerusalem for Jews. And here was Paul's mentality in this. If the Jews are willing to share the good news with you, you also should share your material possessions, your blessings with them. Because the reality is, as he says in in, um, Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All those old things that we use to separate and divide, those are abolished in Jesus Christ. We're all one in him. That's not to say that you know, our, our sexual orientation simply ceases to matter. It, or it ceases to exist, but it ceases to matter in God's eyes when it comes to our relationship to him. The, the, the backgrounds of our cultural differences cease to matter. You're Jewish, you're Gentile, that's great, but at the end of the day, we're all sons and daughters of God. That is our primary identification. You're a, a Republican, you're a Democrat, you like the Angels, you like the, the Dodgers. We can all minister together. That's what we talked about a couple weeks ago. All of those old dividing lines are completely abolished under Jesus Christ. And the taking up of an offering from the Gentile Christians to support those Jewish people back in Jerusalem was a massive declaration that we're all one. Does that make sense? So here is Paul's plan. He goes into it in verse 23. But now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to see you when I go to Spain. Spain is that far left side, that, that kind of big orange blot right there at the end of the Mediterranean. That's as far west as I can get in this Mediterranean region, in the Roman region. All of that, that bright orange is the Roman Empire at the time of Paul traveling around. He goes, my plan is to go as far west as I can get, and I'm going to use Rome as my jumping off point. 
But however, now, this is verse 25, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Acacia, these places that I've been traveling around and planting churches in, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor amongst the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, and so they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So, my plan is that after I've completed the task of taking this money that I've collected to Jerusalem and made sure that they've received this contribution, I'm going to go to Spain and visit you along the way. And I know that when I come to you, I'm going to come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. That is Paul's plan. And he's writing this about 57 A.D., And he's writing it probably near Corinth, if not in the city of Corinth, which is in the... I wish I had my laser pointer. I'm always looking for excuses to use it, and now I can't. So here I am. I'm in Corinth. I'm planning on going back to Jerusalem just briefly. Then I'm going to sail over to to Rome. I'm going to spend a little bit of time with you so that we can be together, mutually edify one another. We can kind of... And then I'm going to use you guys... To, to send me out, and I, I plan to go to Spain. That was his plan, but I, I love the, the proverb that says, you know, in his heart a man plans his path, but the Lord directs his steps. And even Paul, who was called by God, found that to be the case because his plans and what ultimately happened for Paul did not coincide, at least the way that he anticipated. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to cover about a third of the book of Acts. The last third of it. Because the last third of the book of Acts follows Paul along his missionary journey. And particularly, we're going to start from the moment that he's written this letter. What Paul ended up doing is he goes back to Jerusalem. And he meets with the the Jewish leaders and the Jewish Christian leaders, Peter and all of these giants of the faith that we would call them. And, And he kind of shares these contributions that the Gentile Christians have given. Here you go, I brought these to you. He's brought some Gentiles with him. They come into the city. They're introduced to some of these, um, you know, Christian leaders. And then Paul goes, I want to go to the temple. He's still a, a Jewish man and he still wants to go worship God. And so he kind of purifies himself ritually and then he goes into the temple. And while he's there, some of the Jews in the temple recognize him. That's Paul. That's the guy that keeps stirring up the Gentiles, who keeps trying to share this weird gospel message with them and who who is basically an enemy of the Mosaic law. He's trying to teach Gentiles that if they want to come to know God, they don't have to obey the Jewish laws. They don't have to do the ritual cleansings. They don't have to, um, you know, honor the Sabbath and all these other things. This man is evil. And in fact, we saw him with Gentiles. I bet he brought him into the temple. This man needs to die. And so the crowd starts getting stirred up. And even though Paul had not brought a Gentile into the inner courts, they start accusing him of doing that, and the people are getting more and more angry. And ironically, the very man who had started his career persecuting Christians finds himself on the receiving end of that righteous indignation. He finds himself about to be torn apart by a crowd of people that want nothing more than for him to be silenced permanently. And at this point, the the Roman soldiers that are in the area who are keeping the peace because remember this is a Roman occupied city they step in they don't know what's going on but they see that this guy is kind of the epicenter of all of this commotion so they arrest Paul they put him in chains just to silence the crowds a little bit and they begin to lead him toward the, the army barracks because they need some place to protect him from the crowds and as Paul is being led up the steps he looks to the the 
leader of these Roman soldiers and he goes, do you mind if I address the crowd for a moment? They say, okay, your funeral. Paul turns around and he takes that opportunity not to try to defend himself, but rather to share his testimony. He says, guys, I have been just as zealous as you about the God of our fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. I, in his follower, I love him. And I, in fact, was so zealous, I was persecuting Christians just as you're persecuting me right now. I had letters from our leaders giving me permission to go to Damascus to persecute other Christians. And along the way, I was stopped dead in my tracks by Jesus Christ. And he shares his testimony. I was blinded. I was led into the city. Ananias prayed over me and the scales fell away from my eyes. And I began to recognize that Jesus, the Christ, is the Messiah, the anointed redeemer of mankind. I began to then spend hours poring over the Old Testament and reckon, he didn't call it the Old Testament, over Scripture and recognize that this same Jesus fits all of these, all of these um, prophecies. He is the one we've been waiting for. And he has specifically called me to be an ambassador of this good news, this gospel message to the Gentiles. Well, the crowds have been silent and listening up until the moment he mentioned the Gentiles. But the moment he mentions the Gentiles and the fact that he might share this good news with them, they go ballistic. Kill him! He doesn't deserve to live! The Roman soldiers take him inside the barracks so he doesn't get torn apart. And they try to just calm everything down. And the next day, Paul is now paraded back before the Sanhedrin, the rulers of the Jewish people. And once again, Paul has the opportunity to defend himself. And once again, the Sanhedrin reject his testimony. And in fact, some of the Jews decide that they are going to take a vow that they will not eat food or drink water until Paul is dead. They are that serious about silencing this enemy of what they feel like is an enemy of uh, the Mosaic Law, enemy of Judaism. And I'm not making this up. I know it reads kind of like an adventure story. This is real life. This is what Paul endured for the sake of the gospel message. So the Roman guards catch wind of this plot to kill him. They say, it's not safe for you to stay here. So they end up shipping him over to a a place called um, Caesarea. It was the Roman kind of epicenter for Roman rule in the Jewish region. And Paul is put there under lock and key for two years. During that time, he has the opportunity from time to time to make a case for himself, both to the soldiers that are watching over him, to the leaders of that region. Felix, who is one of the, the, the rulers of that he's been commissioned to care for that place. He gets the opportunity to share his testimony. Again, the Jewish leaders come from time to time and he gives his testimony again and again. And then eventually, towards the end of his stay there, he has the opportunity to share his testimony with King Herod Agrippa. He is a king simply because Caesar has said, you will be my representative here in this region, so I will call you a king, but all of your power is simply imbued by me. And King Agrippa, the leader of the entire region, sits down with Paul and goes, Paul, go ahead and give your defense. And rather than trying to defend himself, Paul once again shares his testimony. I love, and you don't need to turn there, but in the book of Acts, chapter 26, I love this interaction between Paul and King Agrippa. Because this is what King Agrippa, Paul basically shares his entire testimony, and at the end of it, King Agrippa kind of steps back and goes, 
do you honestly think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian, Paul? Is that what you're trying to do here? Straight up calls him on his, on his thing. And Paul's response is awesome. He goes, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me, to me today may become what I am, a Christ follower, except for the chains, of course. I, I wouldn't want that for you. I love the fact that Paul, in the, in the face of his potential death, he could be put to death if they find him guilty of any charges of insurrection or anything like that. Paul cares more about the fact of advancing the gospel message. Now, here's the thing. Paul never anticipated, or at least he did not plan when he was writing the book of Romans, his letter there, he didn't anticipate his imprisonment. Later on, the Holy Spirit started kind of percolating, hey, it's not going to be as easy as you think that you're going to go to Jerusalem, then you're going to go to Rome, then you're going to go to Spain. He started kind of planting those seeds of there's going to be some friction coming up. But at least at the time of writing Romans, his plan was this is what I think is going to happen. And when it start, stopped happening, and when he was arrested in Jerusalem for doing nothing wrong, but simply because he was an advocate for the gospel message, he could have done what many of us do when we hit a detour in life. He could have sat down in the weeds, gotten angry at God, and said, oh, why are you allowing this to happen? He could have thrown a pity party for himself. Or he could have leaned in and said, God, I trust you, regardless of the fact that this was not my plan, regardless of this curveball, and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to follow your lead, and I'm going to do what I feel you're calling me to do, which is to be an ambassador of the good news, and I'm going to share that good news with whomever you place in front of me. I love it. My wife has this saying that for probably the last year or so, she writes on almost every single mirror in our house. She just she loves it. And it's this. Attitude is the difference between an ordeal and an adventure. Our attitude about it is, is, makes all the difference in whether something that we encounter is an ordeal or an adventure. And think about this for a moment. Paul's attitude could have been, I didn't sign up for this. You called me to share the good news. I was zealous for you. I would persecute Christians. You said, don't do that. I won't do that. Fine. But you said, go do this, and I'm doing it, and look what happens. I'm arrested. You, your people that are called by your name want to kill me? This is jacked up. And he could have thrown a pity party for himself. He could have sulked in his cell and said, I'm not going to do anything. But he didn't, did he? Because from first to last, he recognized that he was not his own. He was bought at a price. And regardless of whether his plans went according to what he thought, he said, God, your will be done. He held his plans loosely, which is a good thing because God liked to mess with them a lot. And God placed him in places. Think about this for a moment. If Paul's plans had happened the way he anticipated, he would have gone to Jerusalem for a short time. He would have given him the, the money. Hey, these are from the Gentiles. All is good. He would have left Jerusalem, gone to Rome, and then headed out to Spain. Instead, God said, I want you to minister to the Sanhedrin, these leaders of the Jewish people. I want you to minister to the crowds. I want you to share your testimony. Yes, most of them won't believe you. Most of them, their hearts will be so hardened that they will reject your testimony, but I want you to share it anyway. Not only that, but I want you to share your testimony with Roman soldiers and with centurions, with Felix, the, the governor of that region, with King Herod Agrippa. And you know what? I may even want you to share it with Caesar himself. And Paul's like, whatever. The people who are in front of him get to hear the gospel message. He cannot ultimately determine whether or not that gospel message will take root in their hearts. All he can do is sow the seeds and trust the Holy Spirit to do the rest. 
And so he does that faithfully. And for two years, he spends in a jail cell in, in Caesarea. And then when, after his conversation with King Agrippa, he makes an appeal to Caesar. Listen, I'm a Roman citizen. I have the right to appeal my arrest to the highest court. I want to go to Caesar. And so King Agrippa says, you appeal to Caesar, find a Caesar, you go. And he gets him on a ship and sends him to Rome. And we might think, awesome, now he's going to get to defend himself to Caesar. But even that doesn't go as planned. Because it's getting late in the season. It's getting towards winter time. And storms in that region can get pretty awful. And so Paul's ship encounters a massive hurricane force storm. They call him a nor'easter or whatever. I'm not a sailor. I don't know. But the ship is in the, midst of a, in the midst of a storm so bad that the men who are hardened sailors, they're seasoned, this is what they do all year long, are terrified for their life. They are sure they're going down. They start throwing the food overboard. They start throwing the tackle overboard. Um, they, they're just like, whatever we can do to try to stay afloat. And Paul is praying and God says, listen, not a single person's going to be lost. Just the ship. And so Paul comes and says, guys, listen, I know you're terrified. You need to stay with the ship. And my, my God has told me that not a single person will be lost on this ship. Just the ship's going to go down. I'm sure the captain's like, thanks, that's great news. And, and, and truth be told, that's what ended up happening. They ran aground on a sandbar on, a, on an island called Malta. The storm is pounding against the back of the ship, breaks it open. All the guys swim to shore. Everybody is safe. They get onto shore, crawl up there. They're wet. They're, they're exhausted. They're cold. Somebody builds a fire. Some of the, the indigenous population from that island come down and help them out, clean them up a little bit. They get this fire going. And Paul's helping out. He's grabbing brush to throw in the, in the fire. And as he's doing that, he goes and grabs a thing of brush. And there's a poisonous viper in the brush. And it bites him. And now all of the indigenous populations like, dude, this guy must be a bad dude. The gods are obviously punishing him because he just survived a shipwreck. And now he got bit by the poisonous snake, the most poisonous snake we have on here. He's going to be dead in a second. They go, this guy must be a murderer or something. And so Paul sits down and a minute becomes two minutes. Two minutes becomes three. Then hours pass and nothing happens to Paul. And all of a sudden, these islanders start thinking differently of Paul. He's not a murderer. He must be a god to not have gotten sick from that snake. He should be dead by now. This is, and they start going getting their sick from the island and bringing them to Paul to have him pray and minister over them. And all of a sudden, what the world would have said would be a terrible thing. You got in a shipwreck and then you got bit by a snake? Dude, you are not lucky. God's got it in for you. And Paul goes, no, this is an opportunity again to share the gospel message not only with those men on the ship in a way that's got their attention, by the way, but with these islanders that I otherwise never would have had the opportunity to interact with. And for three months during that winter season, Paul ministers to that island, to the leader of those people, to his shipmates, the men who were in charge of either getting him to Rome or throwing him overboard so he can't escape. They had the right to kill anybody under their care if they thought they might escape. And now all of a sudden, Paul is ministering to them and sharing the gospel message with them. At the end of those three months when the winter season has passed, Paul gets on a ship along with the rest of the, the guys. They find a ship that had weathered the, the storms and spent the winter there, and they finally get to Rome. 
And for the next two years, Paul is again imprisoned in Rome. Now, it's different from our understanding of prison. All it entails is he is literally handcuffed to another Roman soldier who's with him always. And then Paul's allowed to go and rent a house he can stay in. He can interact with anybody. He's got a Roman soldier next to him, so if he's going to do something illegal, they're going to see it. So you're free to do whatever until you have your hearing in front of Caesar. And for the next two years, Paul ministers out of Rome. He gets, finally, it was, it was about two years later than he anticipated, but finally he gets to Rome. He gets to minister to the very people that he'd written this letter to. He gets to interact with a Roman soldier who other, he, he had no idea who, what he had coming there. And um, I love the end of the book of Acts. The very last couple of verses state this in verse 30 of Acts chapter 28. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and the gospel message and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with boldness and without hindrance. For two solid years, he is in Rome in the epicenter. There's something called um, cultural acupuncture that people are practicing, which is basically in acupuncture, you find the nerve centers and you kind of say, we're going to poke there and it should have radiating effects. God places Paul in Rome. He can't go anywhere because he's arrested. So rather than spending a month or two there, he spends two solid years in the epicenter of the entire Mediterranean region, ministering, interacting with leaders, very likely interacting with some of the most powerful leaders of that time, probably at some point maybe even speaking in front of Caesar. I don't know because it's not recorded, so I can't tell you whether or not that happened. It's also during this time that he writes some of his most influential letters to the churches that he planted, the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, a letter to a guy named Philemon. All four of those letters, what we refer to as the prison letters, were written while he was imprisoned in Rome. Was this Paul's plan? No, it was not. God put Paul on a detour. He threw him a curveball, and yet Paul recognized that he, rather than, you know, throwing a pity party for himself and making this into an ordeal, he turned it into an adventure, and it was one of the most powerfully kingdom-advancing adventures that God could have put him on. I don't know what happened to Paul after that. Some people think he may have gone to Spain because that was his original intention. Other people think he actually ended up going back to some of the churches that he'd planted in the Mediterranean region and encouraging them for a couple of years before he's finally arrested again, sent to Rome, and ultimately killed for his faith. He was martyred. A reminder to us that we're not promised easy, carefree lives. But again, remember, Paul recognized that from the beginning. He wrote in 1 Corinthians that to live is Christ and to die is gain because I'll finally get to go and be with my Lord and Savior. We are not promised easy, carefree lives. We are not our own. We were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God in everything. Say, basically, here I am, Lord. Help yourself to me. Whatever you want to do, here I am. And that's how Paul lived his life. Now, I, I, I share the scope of where things went because I want you to recognize that God is not beholden to our plans. We may have a five-year plan, a ten-year plan, or a ten-minute plan. For those of you who are like me, because you know that the question at the beginning, like, do you adapt well to change? I live for it. My wife, on the other hand, is one of those, like, she's planned way out. And so 
it's just ironic, you know. We, we really balance one another out, and sometimes there's frustration there because she wants to, if we were ever to run a marathon, my wife's, like, asking the person, okay, where are all of the water stations? Are they going to serve water? Is there going to be Gatorade there? Where are the bathroom stations? What's the course? I want to map it out. And I hear a gun. I start running, and then I go, what are we doing? You know, that's how, that's, that's who God put together in Kathy and Eric Wayman. And so we balance one another. And thank goodness for the body of Christ where very different people come together and do life together because some people who are strong in planning are with other people who are very strong in, in just kind of going with the flow and figuring stuff out. And that was completely off topic, so I apologize. But here's the point. Our attitude, we are, we are not promised that our lives will go according to our five or ten year plan. God is not beholden to them. But when, not if, but when those curveballs come and those detours hit, we have a choice. Do we sit down in the weeds and throw a pity party for ourselves? Or do we say, God, I trust you and I will follow you wherever you lead? And again, let me give you a, a, a lighthearted example from my own life. A, lot, a month ago or a month and a half ago, my wife and I took our two boys on a 3,000-mile road trip up north to Washington. And along the way, I had mapped it out. I was planned, we're going to stay here one night. We're going to camp in the Redwoods the next night. We're going to see Dane and Tracy Hapney the next night. We're going to pick my parents up at the airport the next day. We're going to stay on this island for a week. We're going to go here. We're going to go there. I had done what I know that my wife needs, which is make sure that we have a place to sleep every night. And so long as we have those mapped out, you can do whatever with the day. Perfect. We figured one another's strengths out and, and kind of worked to it. Second day of the trip. We are driving through the inner recesses of the redwood trees, or of the redwoods. I'm loving it, right? I'm stopping at every little place. My, my boys are getting to the point where I'm like, Dad, can we please just get to our campsite? We're bored of trees. And I'm going, but look at that one looks different. <laughs> this one's rotted in the middle. Let's go and check it out. And as I'm driving through this inner recess of the redwood trees, I look down at the dashboard and the lights start flickering which for those of you who are familiar with vehicles know that that's probably an electrical issue and you, you're in trouble. It ended up being our alternator, but I had no idea in the moment. I'm in the middle of the redwoods, no cell phone access because I've got Sprint. Bad idea whenever you're traveling outside of this little bubble called Orange County. I'm in the middle of the redwoods. The lights start flickering. My son goes, Dad, can we please just get, get to our campsite? I go, sure, son. And I saw at that moment the one place where I could get out of the middle of the redwoods and kind of onto the freeway and it would be a more direct route. Oh, I'm going to take it. And as I'm turning to get onto the 101 freeway, my car dies completely on the shoulder before I get on the freeway. In the one spot, by the way, where there are some houses, so there is some cell reception so long as you have Verizon, which I don't. <laughs> Crank the engine a couple times, nothing's happening. It doesn't even click. You know you're in trouble. So I jump out, and the moment I jump out, I see a woman in a Jaguar start driving past me, and I wave her down like this, and she kind of looks at me like, oh, I am not stopping for him. <laughs> Random person stops in front of you on the side of the road and then starts waving you down, and you've got a nice, new, expensive car. You don't stop. But then she looks in, and she sees Kathy, and she sees the boys, and she goes, okay, this guy's probably not, you know, bad dude. So she does end up stopping, and I go, can you please give me a jump? And she's like, I am not about to connect this car to that thing. <laughs> But thankfully, she had Verizon. She calls her son, who was just down the street. He comes over to try to give us a jump. And while he does that, she goes, I, I go, I have no cell reception. She's like, well, you wouldn't for about 40 miles in either direction. Actually, 20 miles that way, 20 miles that way, there's nothing. You died in the one spot that I get reception. In the one spot, 
for 20 miles either way that you can actually, that I can actually contact somebody. So she gives me her phone and for an hour, I spend an hour on the phone with my insurance company. They're trying to get some tow truck to come out and tow us because this guy who's trying to charge my battery, it's not happening. And at that point, they finally, after an hour, are, try, are able to convince a tow truck to drive the, like 30 miles to come and get us. And then tow us to the closest town, which is 20 miles away. And mind you, it's 4.30 on a Saturday. For anybody who's familiar with um, you know, getting cars fixed, it doesn't happen on Sunday. I've got to be in Washington on, at noon on Monday to pick my parents up for the airport. We're done. My best laid plans for my trip are toast. Finally get a hold of them. They're, they're sending somebody. Give the phone back to the woman. Thank you so much for stopping and for spending an hour and a half with us. Thank you so much for trying to charge my, my battery on my car. I, I bet it's the alternator. They all leave. My wife and I and my two sons are left on the side of the road waiting, hoping that the t- truck, tow truck driver knows where to go. At this point, it's all about my attitude, right? What an ordeal. This is not what I signed up for. At this moment, I should be in the middle of the redwoods setting up a tent, camping for the first time with my boys, something I've been looking forward to for months. God, why? And yet, that mantra that my wife has been using, attitude is the difference between an ordeal and an adventure, starts running through my mind, and I go, you know what? We are not going to let this be an ordeal. Let's make the most of this. We look over in the median and there's this beautiful little apple tree, literally right in between the freeway and this little on-ramp that we're on. We go, hey, that's got apples on it. Let's go have a picnic. We get a blanket. We set it under the tree. We get our little cooler of food. We sit down and for an hour, we just hang out under the apple tree. It was such a sweet little stolen moment. I have pictures of it. It was so fun just kind of hanging there and throwing apples at one another and just kind of hanging out, Right? And then the tow truck driver shows up. He loads the car on. And as we're driving, he goes, you know, that town that you are cleared to go to is probably, you're dead in the water. Like, nobody is going to be open. There's one guy who works on it. He's there a few days a week. I know this area, and and that's not the best place to go. You probably want to go to Eureka, which is like another 28 miles further down the road. How do I get there? He's like, well, you just call your insurance company and ask them if you can. I don't, I have Sprint. He goes, oh, yeah awesome. So he goes, here's my cell phone. I call my insurance company during the patches where you can actually get reception around there. And they go, well, you're cleared up to 48 miles. So I go, well, here's where he wants to take me. They plug it in. They go, that's 47 and a half miles from where you started. Yeah, you can go there. Sweet. They drop us in the middle of Eureka. And I kid you not. And for those of you who are familiar with that area, lots of homeless, I didn't know it at the time. I'm like, babe, we were going to camp tonight. There's some woods over there. Let's camp. My wife's like, who are you? Right? Long story short, and I don't want to belabor this. Long story short, we end up at a hotel. We, we are in there. Kathy's like, how are we going to get our stuff? Because we had to walk two miles. All, because of all the fires going on, all of the hotels are taken. All of the motels are taken. We found like one room in the inn. Way overpriced. But whatever. We have a room. Kathy goes, how are you going to get our stuff? It's like two miles away. I go, oh, walk. And this little guy behind the counter, Indian, dot, not feather. Um, he, he's like, well, how are you going to get your stuff? Well, he's like, what do you need? I go, well, my car is way over there and I'm just, I'm just going to hoof it. He goes, give me 20 minutes and I will help you. Mm, okay, thank you. 20 minutes later, this guy drives up. I get in his car and for the next hour and a half, he starts shuttling me back and forth to my car. First, it's two trips to get all of our stuff out of the van. Then he goes and gets tools to go take the battery out of my van, to go take it across town 
to an auto parts place to see if it's the battery. It's not the battery. Okay, now we know it's the alternator. He then takes, I buy the alternator, he takes me back to the hotel, then he goes and gets a trickle charger, brings it to my room so I can start charging my battery. I don't know this guy, but along the way, for the hour and a half I spent with him, I find out he's not only, he, he's Hindu, and we start having, he finds out I'm a pastor, we start talking, but he's also the owner of the motel that we're staying at. And this guy is taking an hour and a half of his time to shuttle me around like he's an Uber driver. And we had the greatest conversation. And I promise you, I never would have had a conversation with that man had it not been for the fact that my alternator died 47 and a half miles down the road. And he is one of seven people. I say seven specifically because there were seven different people that along the way over the course of those 24 hours ministered to my wife and I, cared for my family, went above and beyond. And we had the opportunity to, to be in relationship with. I had a guy who, and I have to confess as a pastor, I was praying that there would be a mechanic who would be open on a Sunday. I'm sorry, but I did. And there was a guy who was open on a Sunday who had more work that he could get to in two weeks. He, that morning, as he was working on an engine in a, van, in a car, three spark plugs had stripped out, and now he had to bore holes in it. For, I don't know what that means. But Jeff Blum, you understand that. And, and he was having a bad day. And he swept all of his other work aside to work on our van to get us on the road. And I asked him, why did you do that? He goes, because it's the right thing to do. That's it. Not even a believer. Cared for my family. And by 1 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, we were back on the road. And we ended up getting to our destination only an hour and a half later than I had originally planned. That is a detour that could have been an ordeal. I could have thrown my hands up in the air and said, God, why? And yet, as I look back on my trip, it was the most expensive part of the trip, and yet, it was one of the high points of the trip by far because I saw God show up in ways that were far beyond what I could have expected and because of the interactions I got to have with people that I never would have otherwise met. That was a detour that God used to make into an adventure, and I'm really grateful for it. I know it's kind of a silly example, but let me give you a couple of ones that aren't so silly. A girl named Bethany Hamilton, a teenage surfer. At the top of her game, she is progressing up the charts, could be the next phenom, and a shark bites her arm off. In that moment, God, what have I done to deserve this? Haven't I been faithful? Haven't I been going to church my whole life? Why would you do this to me? And she had every right to sit down in the weeds, throw a pity party, and give up. And in fact... For those of you who have watched the movie Soul Surfer, that was part of the temptation to do is to sit down in the weeds and give up. And yet she had a group of people around her loving on her, encouraging her, praying with her. And though her faith wavered and momentarily, in the end of the day she recognized that God was not finished with her yet. And that detour ultimately became an on-ramp to ministry that she otherwise never, ever would have had. The fact that her life itself was enough to make a Hollywood movie. The fact that she ended up going back into surfing, was able to win championships, and ultimately has become like Teen Choice Awards winner and all that kind of stuff. Her testimony has changed lives. Would she have chosen that? Absolutely not, but God used it anyway. I think of Joni Erickson Tata, who at 17 years old is diving into a pool, hits the bottom, severs, her spinal column and becomes a quadriplegic like that before her life has ever really begun. Could she have thrown up her hands and given up? Absolutely. 
She spent two years rehabilitating, learning how to do things with her teeth. She became a painter with her teeth because she didn't have the use of her limbs. And even in the midst of that season, I guarantee you there were moments where she was tempted to throw up her hands and say, I give up. And yet her faith pushed her forward and she said, God, I trust you. And even though this detour seems overwhelming and there's no way I can surmount this, greater is you who is in me than is in the world. And by your strength, your will be done. She began to pour her life out into caring for other people with disabilities. She began to write books. She's written to this date over 50 books. She has multiple honorary doctorates from colleges because of the ministry that she's done to people. She is on the United States Council for Disabilities. She has, been, she has spoken in 47 different countries because she is so in demand, because she is somebody who has not been defeated by her, de- by her detour. She is used as an on-ramp to ministry. And she is one of those powerhouses in the Christian community and in the disabled community, specifically because she said, God, here I am. Help yourself to me. Whatever you want to do with my life. Attitude is the difference between an ordeal and an adventure. And I would just encourage us, because I recognize that there are many of us in here today who are facing an ordeal. Many of us who either have gotten perhaps a, um, a doctor's you know, diagnosis or perhaps there's still some questions. We've gone to the doctor. We don't yet know what the outcome's going to be. We're just getting on that detour on-ramp and we're like, And you have a choice about how you're going to handle it. Maybe, maybe yours isn't physical. Maybe it's emotional. Maybe it's depression and anxiety that have been welling up. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's addiction. Maybe, I don't know what it could be, this detour that may have hit you. Maybe it's something with your family. But a lot of us are probably facing detours right now. And we have a choice in how we're going to respond. Now, I'm not quite finished with Romans chapter 15 yet, so go back there for just a moment because I've got a couple more verses I want to look at. And then we'll kind of wrap this up. In verse 30, Paul ends this section of his letter with a cry for help to the Romans. He goes, here's my plans. This is what I'm planning on doing. And now I urge you, verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, he's speaking to his his fellow believers. I urge you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the spirit to join me in my struggle. Join me in this. How? By praying to God for me. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. Interesting. Not necessarily what he would have anticipated probably, but in a way he was kept safe from them. And it spurred on four years of ministry in captivity. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I might come to you with joy by God's will, and certainly he came to them by God's will, not by his own plans, and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. I love the fact that Paul recognized that even though he specifically was called by God to be an ambassador of good news to the Gentiles, he recognized that these people in Rome, whom he hadn't met at this point, could still join him in that. That even though they may not be ever called upon to stand before an angry crowd of Jewish people and share the good news with them. 
even though they may never be called upon to stand before kings and rulers and share the reason for the faith they have, they could still join with him in prayer. And I've got to tell you something. Prayer is one of those things that we... It is probably the single greatest gift that we disregard a lot. We downplay it a lot. We tend to go to it when all of our other efforts have failed, when, when all of our strength and all of our ability to fix it has run out. That's when we go to prayer. It's like a Hail Mary pass. We're only going to go there if we can't win the game by our own plays. And Paul recognized that prayer is a powerful weapon. In fact, I want to tell you that prayer is perhaps the single greatest offensive weapon to the battle that we find ourselves in. And I want you to recognize, and there's plenty of places that we could go, but I'm not going to take the time this morning. I will simply say that we are at war whether we choose to recognize that fact or not. We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone whom he may devour. And the moment that we say yes to Jesus Christ, we change our allegiance from a member of the kingdom of Satan and sin and separation from God to being a member of the kingdom of God. And in that moment, we paint a target on our backs and he is looking to steal, kill, and destroy the hope that we have in us that we find in Jesus Christ. That's found all throughout Scripture. And in Ephesians chapter 6, which is one of those letters that Paul wrote during his captivity in Rome, He wrote, listen, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Our our enemies are not those arrayed around us. They are spiritual. We are in a spiritual war. Therefore, put on spiritual armor to protect yourself. And he begins to go through it. The breastplate of righteousness. Live righteously. The helmet of salvation. Recognize who you are. You are saved by grace. The shield of faith, because the enemy is shooting flaming arrows, you need to protect yourself, not only behind that, but the shield of faith of others to to be in a phalanx of other soldiers who are standing in lockstep with you so you are protected above and below and to every side as well. And your faith will protect them as well. That's why why we make such a big deal about doing life together. Because our faith protects other people as well. And all of these things, even the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. That's why we call this the sword from that passage. Because the sword of God can carve through the lies of the enemy. When Satan came and tempted Jesus, started questioning, who, if you really are the Son of God, then throw yourself off the edge of this parapet because the Scripture says that the angels will not allow your heel to strike a stone. He was quoting Scripture. Or I should say he was misquoting Scripture. He was twisting it toward his own ends to get Jesus to question who he was and what God had just told him when he was baptized. Jesus was familiar with God's word and so he was able to counter it. Scripture also says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do you see how this is able to separate what might be either from the Spirit of God and what might be from the enemy? Because the Holy Spirit will never suggest something that contradicts Scripture. All of those pieces of the armor that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 are defensive in nature. He does not say, put on the armor of God so that you may take the fight to Satan and you may defeat him and advance the gospel. That's not what he says. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you may take your stand and when the enemy comes against you, you might stand against the onslaught. 
It is defensive in nature because we have an enemy who's coming after us. And the picture I get of the spiritual armor of God is that of a soldier hunkered down in a foxhole, probably a couple of them in that foxhole together, and the bullets are whizzing by overhead. And they are hunkered down, protected, shielding themselves from the attack of the enemy. But there is one offensive weapon that we have at our disposal, and that's prayer. And prayer is like a field phone that we can use to call in the big guns. And might I remind you that the strength to overcome the enemy is not us, ourselves, our our abilities. The strength to overcome the enemy is God's. That's how Paul was able to advance the gospel. It was through the spirit within him. And we have the ability to call through prayer to the mothership. That's a terrible word. I strike that one. Okay? We can call in the big guns. We can call in an airstrike. That advances the gospel. And it's God getting the glory, not us. It's his kingdom advancing, not our kingdom. It's by his strength, not by our own. That's the power of prayer. That's why movies like uh, War Room are so stinking important because it recognizes the fact that we are at war. And the best way to advance is on our knees. Because greater is he that was, is, is within us, greater is he who has created this world than anything else in it. And the only way that we are going to succeed is by him doing it, not by us doing it. And so, I know I'm over time. The point this morning, <laughs> thanks Gary, the point this morning is that I recognize that every single one of us at one point in our life are going to hit detours probably lots of them. And there are some of us in here right now this morning that are in the middle of a detour. God has thrown you a curveball. I should say life has thrown you a curveball. And if that's you right now, I want to ask you to just take the courageous step, uh, step to stand up. If you are in the midst of a detour right now, would you stand up? And we as your family, because we are not called to do life alone, we as your family simply want to surround you, lay hands on you, and pray over you. And so here's what I'm going to ask those of you who are seated. I want you to come forward. I want you, in just a moment, lay hands on one or more of the people in front of you. You do not need to know what's going on in their life. God knows it already. If they want to share with you at some point, that's great, but that's not what we're going to do at this moment. Simply lay your hands on the people in front of you that are standing right now. And ask our God in heaven to enter into this, to guide, direct, and use this detour as an on-ramp to something. His will be done. And ask the Holy Spirit to, to shower peace into their hearts in the midst of the questions, in the midst of the unknowns. Let God be God, and let us simply as your family walk with you in prayer. So let's go ahead and do that right now.